0: Now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to begin in verse 36 of that chapter and read into the beginning of chapter 8. But the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting in verse 36, if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you're going to find it on page 864. Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, page 864 four. Says one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisees' house and took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisees' house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Well, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, for whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And that's where we'll conclude the reading for today. That we're introduced, Luke, the gospel writer, tells us of two people. And initially, we don't get either of their names, but he's setting up a contrast. There's more than two people involved. Uh, The Pharisee who would have invited Jesus over would have very likely had a, a larger gathering, and so hence the possibility with open doors that people kind of come in and out in those sort of occasions, and one of them being this woman who comes in. So there's more people involved, but Luke kind of zooms in for us on two specific people and sets up for us a bit of a contrast. They couldn't be any more different, though we don't know their names yet. One's a Pharisee, a religious leader of some kind, uh, known by, by reputation as being very disciplined in his religious practices and devotions. To be a Pharisee was to be one of those who sought as much as possible to honor the law of God in every area of his life and so was known by that and had a reputation for that, and so had heard something about Jesus. And up to this point, we'd seen some Pharisees not treat Jesus as the way, not have an open invitation to come over to their house. Many of them were already angry at Jesus and already plotting to do things against Jesus. So he's unique in that he still seems initially open-minded that whatever he's heard, he still wants... To hear from Jesus directly. He wants the opportunity to engage him specifically and not base all of his ideas about him on hearsay. And so he invites him into his home. Then we're introduced to someone else. She's described as a woman of the city who was a sinner, which most commentators will say is a way of identifying that she was a known prostitute in the city so she had a reputation and she had a career and that career was sinful and everyone knew who she was. And so as a woman would have already been in terms of politically and in terms of influence and the opportunity to climb the social ladder would have been much more limited than the Pharisee. He known for his zeal towards religion, his obedience to the ways of God. And she makes a career out of doing things that God would otherwise discourage and forbid for her own sake, that he would tell her not to do them. So they're two very different people. They both are interested and curious about who this Jesus is, but they react in very, very different ways. The Pharisee invites them over for a time of specific conversation dialogue, But the picture that we get of the woman, it says that she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment. So she seems to be coming already before she gets there with an intentionality of giving some type of gift to Jesus and doing something for him. And so the Pharisee has an intention. He's inviting him over as an act of hospitality to provide him food and company. And she also has a desire and an intention to provide and give something to him. But then at that point, almost everything else that happens is not, we we can safely assume, according to the plan that she would have had. Because she's bringing this to do a certain type of anointing but what we then get is the sense that as Jesus is reclined, and so most tables being very low or just sort of on a rug in the ground, everyone's kind of leaning into the middle but laying down, not sitting on chairs. She, as she gets closer to Jesus, becomes overwhelmed at the prospect of being able to meet him and to do something with him. And so she actually just falls to her knees. And she starts to sob and it's the type of sobbing you can't manufacture i can't just in my own mind right now say okay now make those tears come but it's enough tears to come that she starts to to get his feet wet because they're not just dripping down her but they're dripping on his feet and so she's sobbing uncontrollably And almost then, in what would be an act of embarrassment over that, she undoes her hair, which is culturally a taboo. You don't, in that society, if you're wearing your hair up, put your hair down because it has only connotations of intimacy with someone. So, i.e., it's only when you go home and you're right about to go to bed that you put your hair down. Because that's the only time you're supposed to be seen in that way with someone with whom you're in a committed relationship with and have intimacy with. But she's so overcome in sobbing at his feet and then wanting to wipe up those feet that she lets her hair down and begins to use her hair to do that. And then after that, uses the ointment that she brought and had originally intended to use to anoint him. But if we can picture her there sobbing at his feet and with just what we already know about her, from what we're told as a woman of the city who is a sinner, what is it that would bring her to that place with Jesus? Well, up until that point, every man she's ever dealt with only looks at her in one way and only cares about one thing. And they take advantage of her in any way they can, time and again, such that everyone in town knows who she is and what she does. So just literally, the, the, what would the last week, the last just few days leading up to this event have been like for her? It doesn't take a significant amount of imagination on our part to think about what someone whose career was in prostitution might have included in that city. And we don't know the origins of it. We don't know how she got into that lifestyle, but it was one of those things that once you got into that lifestyle, it was very, very hard to get out because now you would have been viewed by almost anyone else in that society who was thinking about the prospects of marriage as being not allowed to marry (laughs) there there is no more prospect for real intimacy for this person because now this person is labeled in such a way that she's unclean and and anyone who is a Pharisee like Simon or is desiring to be zealous and obedient to the law would say no that I'm supposed to have nothing to do with you and that kind of separation, and then the shame goes, that goes with that becomes a cycle that keeps you in that way of life. Because what are you going to do if now no one is allowed to marry you, and therefore, in a very, very practical way, take care of you? What are the prospects of your future? Incredibly limited. And we don't know what she knew of Jesus up to this point. We don't know if she was one in the crowds who was seeing him heal people. We don't know if she was there as he was teaching and what she might have heard him say, but clearly she came prepared to do something for him, to anoint him. But even in all of her preparations, when she got closer and closer to the one person who actually, truly, and genuinely loved her, She was overwhelmed by that. This is one person who does not look at me in that way. This is one person who does not, in looking at me, only think of me as capable of a few things. This is someone who actually extends love to me and does not ask anything from me. And so she's sobbing. to to actually meet someone who cares about her for who she really is in spite of what she does and in spite of how everyone else views her. And so she makes a completely what would otherwise be an embarrassing scene (laughs) to put her hair down and to wipe his feet and to anoint him. And we get the sense that she's breaking some cultural taboos when then the Pharisee says... Okay, this guy clearly is not a prophet. <laughs> because if this guy knew who it was that was right now being inappropriate, he, 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 again, he would separate himself. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to say, get away from me. Have nothing to do with me. I don't want to become unclean. I don't want people to think anything about me that would question my character or my integrity. And then Jesus tells us what his name is. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, okay, say it. And then he tells a parable about two debtors. So from these two people, Jesus then tells a story about two debtors. A certain Monday lender had two debtors. One owed 500 and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, one of the shocking things about this parable that Jesus is telling is that he tells it as two people equally in debt to the same moneylender that for simon the pharisee it would have to be a little troubling wait a minute are you are you saying we're both debtors are you didn't didn't you don't you know the differences between us don't you know that i'm someone who's committed my life to following the ways and the law and the will of God and to the best of my ability. I have a, a zeal and a passion to do uh, what I understand the law to say. And she's someone who professionally makes her living, violating some of those very laws. And you're saying we're both debtors. It's part of the offense of this story. Is that is precisely what Jesus is telling him. That both of you have a debt as it relates to the ultimate giver the God who has given us everything life and breath and being and that's the implication of this that they they both need something from God they might have had very different lives and have a very different trajectory in the immediacy of their futures but both of them have a fundamental need for forgiveness they both need forgiveness That's part of what Jesus was driving home when he taught all of his disciples how to pray. And he said, pray, you know, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And what he does is he brings together two things, our primary physical need and our primary spiritual need. And so another way to rephrase that is to say, you and I need forgiveness like we need food. We all need it. None of us can live without it. Every one of us needs forgiveness forgiveness. It might be forgiveness for different things. Surely it is. There are different types of sin and there are different levels of harm that we can cause to other people, depending on the nature of our sin. But there is not a single one of us who does not need forgiveness, who's lived a perfect life, even in our best attempts to follow him. And so from this, there's only one conclusion that's drawn. Jesus asks the question, so who do you think would love him more? Which is a fascinating question, because he could have just as easily asked, who do you think will be more thankful? But he doesn't. He says, who do you think would love the lender more? And Simon, there's a bit of almost reluctance in his answer in verse 43 when he says, the one, I suppose, who was forgiven, for whom he canceled the larger debt. But he sees the logic, he sees the conclusion, if they both need forgiveness, and one is forgiven for a lot more, then that person would seem to be the one most likely to love back. And so he has to think that through. What does this mean about me? I've lived my whole life this way, trying to do all these things. She's lived her life this way, but Jesus is getting me to confront the reality and come to the conclusion that as it relates to forgiveness, she's actually at an advantage. As it relates to real and true salvation, and what that means, and the possibility of then a restored relationship with the Father, there are some ways in which she is much farther along and better off than I am. And that completely flips his worldview around. And some of us still today, if we're just asked the basic question, you know, who are the people that are saved? And how do we become saved? And we were supposed to detail a list. We'd say, well, someone who really goes to church every Sunday, who helps and volunteers and builds a Habitat house on the weekend every now and again, and someone who gives money to good cause. We'd make this list of all these things that we as people can do. And Jesus is, in telling this parable, saying, but if we're not careful, all of those things can actually become ways in which we avoid a relationship with God. That if we do those things as a way to feel good about ourselves and as a way to try to save ourselves, then actually every time we do that, in ways we don't realize, we're constructing barriers to actual salvation. Because instead of coming to God on our knees, sobbing, asking for forgiveness, we walk around and think, we're doing pretty good. We're trying really hard. And so if salvation comes to those who try the hardest, then Simon's ahead of the curve. But if salvation comes to those who know their brokenness and who cry out for help, well, then it's this woman of the city, this sinner who has the advantage because she won't spend two seconds trying to justify the possibility that she could save herself. If salvation is going to come to her, it's going to come from outside of her. It's going to come from someone else. It's going to come from the gracious forgiver who's also the one who is lent to her. And if that person has integrity, if that person has character, if the money lender wipes clean the debt, then she has the hope and the possibility of salvation. And then when we're confronted with this, even those of us who are Christians, we're challenged to say, so in, in a very practical way in discipleship or in parenting, what are we trying, who are we trying to raise? And more often than not, we're trying to raise people like Simon, right? <laughs> we're trying to say, these are the good things you need to do in society, and these are the principles you really need to obey, and this is the way you need to live life, because we want people to be avoided the pain that this woman is experiencing. And there's a rightness to that. We should be able to look at lifestyles and say that lifestyle is self-destructive. That lifestyle harms people. So we don't want you to become like this woman who now has a reputation in the city. We want you to be a law-abiding, obedient person like Simon. But here again is the danger. Do we desire to mentor or to raise Simons who don't understand their need for forgiveness? And who in all of their religious endeavor ultimately avoid a true and genuine relationship with God. I hope we would say we don't desire that. We don't want anyone to think about serving in the church or leading a small group or serving at a soup kitchen or donating some money as the ways in which they earn any favor with God that somehow any of those individually or all of those together are how you save yourself. We want to say over and over again that we need God. We need salvation from him. And so even when we make those right choices and do things that are healthier than other things, that we would never allow even those right choices to become means of self-confidence, but always and consistently keep and maintain our confidence on God. Because Jesus here is not, either, he's not excusing the sin of either person, but he's helping them both understand that they're sinners and they need forgiveness, but that they both need it. And especially those of us who have either grown up in a Christian home or have converted to Christianity and as much in our minds as possible want to seek to do the will of God, there is an extra level of temptation that we have to be aware of to say... Am I still doing this to feel good about myself? Or am I still doing this so that people will think good things about me? Well, if the answer to either of those is yes, well, then they're not means of worship of God. They're just a, a religious way of worshiping ourselves. And that's part of what makes it dangerous because it's deceptive. It looks good on the outside, but in the core, It's rotten. Have you done that where you've looked at an apple that looked perfectly fine on the outside and then you bit into it? There wasn't a single bruise, there wasn't a single marking that gave you any indication that from the inside it was rotting. And then you take a big bite and you just jump. You're like, oh my God. And you just try to spit something out of your mouth. Like, I hope I didn't, like, I'm not going to get sick now after biting into that. Well, we don't want that as human beings. We don't want to look a certain way on the outside and have no substance on the inside. Jesus is very much in this exchange with them uh, giving us a real life example of what he preached in his sermon on the plain. This woman comes weeping, but she leaves in peace. And he says, woe to you who laugh now because you're not going to be laughing at the end. And we see that reversal go on. She comes in completely broken, and then he says to her, go in peace. Simon... Starts off thinking he's got it all together. He's the host. He can invite him in. He can have the party. And maybe he'll just learn a couple of things. And he's the one who at the end is confronted with whether or not he's actually understood who Jesus is. And, and Jesus makes it clear to him. He says, Simon, you invited me in as a guest, but she honors me as her savior. You want to hear me talk about some things and have this Intellectual debate. But she's willing to surrender to my will and know me as her Lord. And Simon, that she's better off in that sense because she's come to that place of brokenness. And the challenge is for him to also come there. And the question of people around her is, who is Jesus to be able to forgive sins? How could, how could he even say that? But he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. One of the reasons we then went into chapter 8 was so that we could see yet again more information, another contrast that so this happens and then soon afterward he goes on proclaiming the kingdom and all kinds of people come and then we get a description of another woman named Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. So she was a demon-possessed woman who also would have had almost no prospects of a future, of a hope. People would have looked at her and said, get away from her. Have nothing to do with her. That's a possessed woman. No one was saying, hey, I think maybe if we went out, you know, we get to know each other and uh, we'll just see where this goes. Everyone would have avoided her, except that Jesus healed her and restored her. But then we're also told of people who weren't possessed by demons. They're actually very well off. They have connections to people of political power. And they actually help fund and finance the disciples in their traveling. It says that there's Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, many others, who provided for them out of their means. What that's saying is they had some money when they converted to Christ they then offered some of those resources to practically pay for and fund the traveling of the disciples and Jesus himself. So again, money's not the barrier to the relationship. Having religious zeal is not the barrier. Jesus is available to everyone. But it is sometimes the poor and the powerless who recognize it first. But all of us, even those of us with political connections, with influence from a good background who try really hard, can still find that very peace that this woman found. But we have to find it in the same way. We can only find it when we acknowledge our sin and our dependence upon him. We can only acknowledge it when we come, not making demands from him, but for pleading and begging for forgiveness. Not telling him what our resume is and all the things that we've done and how he should be so glad to have us, but when we can confess and acknowledge acknowledge to him our sin and our brokenness and ask him to be the one who can restore new life to us. A very practical level, some of you are still challenged to think this. You think that if you just spent the last two years trying any number of drugs, having multiple relationships with people, just kind of living life your own way on your own terms, one of the temptations that Satan is pressing on in your mind is that because you've done all those things, you can't be saved. There is no future. There is no hope. You chose your path, and that path is settled. That's how Satan operates. Whenever we then sin to add shame to sin in such a way that we then don't come to Christ for forgiveness. Because we know that if we had to come and present all of our good behavior and all of the good things we've done, the list is not very long. Uh, Russell Moore put it this way. He said, Satan, for a vulnerable woman who's pregnant and contemplating an abortion, Satan, is pro-choice on the way into an abortion clinic. And after someone has an abortion, he's pro-life on the way out. In other words, whenever we make a decision, he then adds to that decision a level of shame and guilt that in this, wife's mind, in this woman's mind, he would have been saying, don't go in that house. Don't go in that house. He can't help you. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows what you've done. Don't go in the house. Don't go at his feet. What, what is he going to do with you? But in spite of all that temptation, in spite of any shame associated with her sin, she went in the house. <laughs> she believed that he could forgive her, that he could restore her, that he could heal. And one of the things that's so amazing is that she still, even in this moment, did not know fully how much Jesus loved her. She didn't know that only a a little bit later, Jesus would fall to his knees and sweat so hard that it says his sweat turned to drops of blood because he was overwhelmed at the prospects of the cross and what it would mean. And that in prayer, pleading with this heavenly father to say, if there's any other way, please let me go any other way. He that healed so many people, he who restored so many relationships that he would one day fall on his knees at the thought and the anticipation of the weight of sin upon him. And the way that that would affect even though just momentarily how his heavenly father viewed him as we sang about that the father would turn his face away. When Jesus would bear the weight and the shame of sin for her so that she could be set free so that she in fact could go in peace. That's the quote on the back of the handout if you have it for you from John Stott. He said, I never myself could believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I just want to say, especially to you, who you come here, and this has been one of the most painful weeks you've had, or one of the most painful periods in your life, and you can acknowledge that a good chunk of it is because of even choices that you've made that you would consider Jesus, that you would not allow any temptation to come and make you believe that Jesus doesn't have a way for you or he doesn't have hope for you, but that you would really and truly believe that if you come into the house, if you fall at his feet, he has all the grace and all the compassion that you need. We're going to sing a new song now. First, it'll be sung to us, and then we'll sing it together. But when I heard it, I just thought it's a very appropriate song for the gospel of Luke. Because this is what Luke is doing all throughout. Is telling us about Jesus and how he welcomes in all the poor and powerless. All the lost and lonely. And all the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy. And all will sing out hallelujah. And all will cry out hallelujah all the hearts who are content and all who feel unworthy, all who hurt with nothing left will know that you are holy and all will sing out hallelujah and we will cry out hallelujah. And so I'll pray, we'll listen to the song first, sung all the way through and then they'll invite us to stand and sing the song with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the good news that though we are desperate for forgiveness and we need forgiveness like we need food, that you are a forgiving God, (laughs) that we can look up to you and as we learn about you through your son Jesus, that we can really believe through how he treated other people in his day to be able to be confident and to know how you view us and how you treat us today. Heavenly Father, we confess that we can even make a complete hash of all of our attempts to obey you. We can allow pride to creep up even in our desires to to follow you and that we can become self-reliant when we started off simply trying to be obedient. And so we all are gathered here needing rescue. Some for the very first time. Some from very painful situations. And some of us from a deceptive arrogance that has creeped in. That has made us forget how much you've really loved us and how much you've really forgiven us for. And we... We do cry out hallelujah. We want to shout from the mountaintops and all the villages and cities the good news of who you are and how great your love is. We thank you for taking on our pain for experiencing the suffering of Gethsemane and the suffering of the cross because of your love for us. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen.